podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Fire for them, fire for them. If you're looking for that 35 bag umbrella and all that thing there, keep it locked with this Unomics podcast. Hello and welcome back to episode 57 of the Dishonomics podcast. As per usual, shout out to all those who listened to the previous one. Episode 56, I had a rant on Kanye and how people reacted to his original rant. This is pre-slavery comments about being black and conservative. Black people could be whatever they want to be in terms of politics, we're not homogenous. But the main crux of that podcast was tax. How much we pay, why we pay it, what taxes we pay, where our tax money goes, and all things tax related. This week, I'm joined by my boy David. We're going to be discussing all types of economic theory. It's a bit of a geek fest, but we're going to make it relevant to everyday life and how you can use some of these theories in everyday aspects and how some of these theories actually play out in the real world. So first of all, we're going to talk about what David does for a living and we're going to discuss risk. Yo, David, what's good? Yeah, you're right, man. How's it going? Beautiful, beautiful. We finally um, overcome our technical difficulties for the second time. Yeah, the second time, isn't it? I know, the first time I surrendered, not even a match. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole football match, basically. Okay, <laughs> cool. So, David, you've been on my podcast. And two times four. Is it two times or is it not three? Uh, it might be three. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's two, actually. No, it might be two. I can't remember. I it's can't probably remember. two, it's probably two. Matter. I've been on before, anyway. Yeah, you've been on before. So, um... Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about David for those who don't know. So, David, um, tell us about yourself. Um, let's start off with what you do for a living. Um, I'm a. I've been a trader for about uh, four or five years. I was a broker before. Um, recently, I was an editor as well of a financial publication. So yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, involved in the financial markets in kind of a speculative position um rather than you know more of a facilitative position and intermediary like uh, uh i don't know some some other people that might be involved in finance so yeah i'm basically looking at the markets and seeing which way they're going to move and then uh gambling which is ridiculous <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's insane but if you if you're if you're quite good at it you can make a you can make a decent feature change and it can be and it does seem quite fun from out from outside i haven't got involved in it yet i just need to find the time yeah. to but it does look a bit of fun um, no, exactly. So, what got you into finance? So, like, what did did you study anything at um, school level? Going into university, what kind of got you? In fact, from the beginning, like, tell me how your path from I don't know uh, childhood slash teenage years into um, early adult life. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I didn't know. I think, like most people, I, did, I had no clue what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I went to I went and did an economics degree at uni, but. Um, it was when I was in my, I think I was in upper six. Um, so yeah, I can't even remember now, year 13 is it? And um, I basically saw a YouTube advert for one of those, you know, one of those uh, kind of trading sites and uh, trading at a broker site. And, um, you know, it looked all fun from their marketing and whatnot. And it looks, oh, you can make whatever money in, you know, two days, you can double your money or whatever. Yeah. So I, I, gave, I gave it a go, opened up a demo account. This must have been, when I was, uh, I just turned 18, I think it was. I think I just turned 18. So it was around upper six anyway, that kind of age. Um, and then I realized very, very quickly um, that it's very, very difficult. And really you need you need to dedicate and you really need to put hours into it. Um, and it kind of, it kind of, um, it changes you um, in terms of the way that you think about stuff and the way that you think of in, in probabilities and whatnot. Went yes. to uni, kept trading, um, left uni, went into uh, work at a retail brokerage. Um, and then, yeah, the rest is kind of history. I worked for, uh, I was head of UK for trading view for a, for a period of time. Um, and yeah, that's, I've, always, I've always kind of been involved in this space um, to do FX and, and just trading, really. Okay, for those who don't know, um, in layman's term, explain what a brokerage is. So a broker is someone, it's like the middleman uh, that goes 
between um, buyers and sellers. Kind of, yeah, buyers and sellers. So um, you're you, uh, you you're basically the intermediary in the market. So if you if you trade via a retail broker, they give you a price to the rest of the market. So if you want to buy an asset, then they've got loads of different liquidity feeds and price feeds, and base, which is basically different um, people participating in a market, and then they basically match your order up. So um, yeah, if you're a buyer, then you're matched with a seller, and vice versa. So that's literally it. And then they just take a little bit of commission. Okay, fantastic. And in terms of like, what I want to do now, I'm going to start asking um, my guests a bit about like, their political views for as much as, or as much as as little as you want to um, divulge. So where do you stand? Like, how, what's, your out, what's your outlook on life, really, in, in society? Um, I've always thought um, of individualism as being quite important. Now, I know that's quite a, it's more of a, Conservative, it's a conservative value, but that's with a small C. Um, mm. I don't particularly like the conservatives, big C. Mm. Um, but recently, literally over in like the last seven or eight months, um, I've found out, and it's actually via um, a couple of people on Twitter that have kind of started it. This thing called, well, not started it, it's been around for a very long time, but that's where I was made aware of it. Um, it's called um, Georgism. So it basically means that um, you tax the land and then um all of the other taxes like income tax and vat you get rid of because they they're inefficient and i think if you think about it everything at the end of the day politically every political decision comes down to economics yeah um, the foundation of everything and it, whether people like to admit it or not they people pay and people think with their pocket um, you know so if, if something's affecting your pocket, it's going to affect your quality of life. It's going to affect everything else. Um, so this is why, you know, you have people on different sides. Some people own assets. That means that they'll be on the right. Some people don't own as many assets. They're more likely to be on the left. Mm. Um, whereas if you can have a more equitable system economically, which um, appeases kind of both sides, um, I think that's the perfect way to solve kind of political tribalism. So that's why I'm I'm kind of I'm, I'm more I'm, I'd say I'm centre right, but with this kind of leaning towards this thing called Georgism. Okay, cool. Well, that's quite interesting, actually. All right, cool. So the next segment we're going to be discuss. Well, baby, let me introduce the podcast. Actually, you know, I would have introduced that in the intro. I'm going to cut this out. Um, so we're talking risk today. Well, in this segment, yeah. so. My understanding of risk in terms in terms of the general definition is a situation um, in, involving exposure to danger potentially, and financial risk I see as a chance, an investment actually um, a chance an investment actual return will differ from the expected return, whether positively or negatively. What are your thoughts on risk, both in the general sense and the financial sense? Yeah, I think you've you've explained it quite well there in terms of. Um... Uh, kind of the, the definition is it's basically risk is the chance of an adverse um, kind of event occurring to what you you want and then reward is obviously the opposite um, in terms of a broader sense I think it's purely down to just probabilities mm. you know um, and playing because uh, there's risk that you can't have a 100% certain um, event occurring do you know what I mean um, so a risk is kind of that difference between cert uh, between certainty and the chance of it actually happening. You know? Of course. So if you've you know if you've got a fifty fifty chance of something happening, you've got fifty percent you know of it could uh, or of, of the possibility of it occurring, and then fifty percent of it not occurring. So obviously fifty percent is risk in that case. If it was sixty forty of one side occurring and it not occurring, then forty percent would be risk. Um, but I think um, my understanding of risk, especially from being a trader, is to um, always do things when you can find an edge, even if the edge is really, really small. Mm. You know, you could have like a 1% edge. For example, I'll give you an example, actually. Um, you should never play on an American roulette wheel. Um, you shouldn't play roulette anyway because it's a mugs game. But you especially shouldn't play on an American roulette wheel. And now the reason is, is because there's two little zeros on it. And that gives the house... An, really really small small edge but over time that that degrade that degradation of their own um of their own risk you know that gives them money over time so the more people play on that wheel the more, um, like, the more the, likely they're going to win and across the period of time 
that's it. Whereas with the European wheel, it's only got one zero. So if you're going to play out of the both of them, you should choose the European wheel. Um, it's just tiny things like that. And that's a perfect example of an edge. Um, and, and, you know, if you can exploit an edge over time, if you can find an edge, that's something that you're good at and just keep banging on at it, you know, you can do pretty well, I think. Um, and it's all, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like a marginal gain in, in that sense. Yeah, well, so you, yeah, we might as well discuss marginal gains now since you brought it up, actually. Yeah, but, um, sure. I've always been interested in the marginal gains theory um, and marginal losses. Basically, with marginal gain, it's like they're saying, if you make a one, if you do something that will improve, improve you by 1%, so let's say, I'll give this example um, with... With me, it was um, obtaining information. So I've always had a thing from young. I always challenge everything. So if somebody tells me something, unless I really, really trust you and I really know, like, for example, David, if you told me something about the markets, I'll believe it because I've already developed a trust of you and I know that you're on point. But more, to, more mm. often than not, I'm going to check stuff. And because I've been doing that every single time since I was, let's say, 13, 14 years old, across a period of time, I've been able to develop some form of knowledge and, 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 and enables me to debate quite effectively. The first time I did it wouldn't, didn't make a massive difference to my life. So that's that 1% yeah. different. But as you keep on doing these things, as you compound it across a period of time, long-term you see the benefit. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Oh, I'll give you another example. So now this is, this example is a bit stupid now because of what's come out recently. But mm. um, you know Team Sky, the cycling uh, team. Yeah. So there was a bloke called uh, Dave Brailsford, I think it was, and um, he basically believed in this thing called marginal gains. And obviously now it's come out that they probably used uh, performance enhancing drugs, but he believed in stuff like um, bringing the same mattress onto the team coaches that they'd always sleep on. Um, designing the seat in like of their bikes in like a specific way that would give them like a tiny bit extra comfort. Like all of these tiny, tiny different things all end up adding up into like a big change over time. And I think that, you know, if even if you look at if, if you look at um the most successful people, for example, um, they try and minimize their risks by doing the same thing over and over again each day, mm. getting up at the same time, going to the gym, for example eating right all of these things add up to like really really big um eventual outcomes you know and i think that by making sure that you you add in these tiny tiny little changes that are beneficial and probably a lot of it has to do with discipline as well um you're able to kind of have an asymmetric risk to reward if you know what i mean so before we were talking about um like 50 50 or 60 40 you want to try and be getting to that 60 40 level where um your risk is less than half um it's obviously you obviously can't measure it but you can have a good idea of if you're doing good things every day um you can minimize your risk to specific to specific things you know yeah definitely um i'll give another example for those who watch basketball when players go to take a free throw um you will notice that they have a ritual so a player may bounce the ball two times look up, spin at his wrist and take the free throw. And these players will do it every single, without fail. And like, and if, or, and they'll go and like that, which is American slang for like, like give a, a fist pump to, not fist pump, a spud, we call it here, or a high five to a teammate. And if a team, and if a teammate doesn't high five, then they'll put their hand there because they don't want to break that, that, um, that um, routine. So, and mm-hmm. another example of this, what I want to say is, um, if you look at, people who tend to be more well-off and, and uh, better off uh, parts of society is that every day they consistently, if you, um, if you analyse them, they consistently make good decisions on a day-to-day basis. And obviously the first day you make a good decision may not be like the greatest thing for you. For example, with me right now, I'm on a, some sort of diet plan. So if I, um, if I go gym <coughs> once, <laughs> if I go gym once and not eat 25 croissants and loads of mac and cheese like I want to, I'm not going to suddenly have a six pack and the biggest muscles in the world. But if I continuously did it, as you said, um, discipline, keep on doing that, I'm going to eventually see the gains. Same thing with um, people who end up wealthy. They make the correct decisions on a day-to-day basis. And on the flip side, in terms of martial losses, that can be an example, own personal example of myself. Um, when, I learned to, when I was teaching myself financial disciplines, because before I think 
Oh, it's not that bad. I'll just spend this five pounds. It's not that it's not gonna make the biggest dent in the mm. world in comparison to my um, current balance or my income. However, if I continue to behave in that manner, five pound every week will add up to a certain amount. I'll tell you, you see meal you see meal deals, they're designed to make people broke, I swear to God. Of course. Of course. Because you think you're getting you think you're getting a great thing when you, you see the sandwich is two pound twenty or whatever. And then you see, oh, I drink another thing is 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 whatnot. You're not saving money because you weren't going to spend that. You extra want to add you want to anyway. add extra money anyway. You're 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 using money because you just think it's a good deal. And really, you know, the margins that they have on this food and stuff, they're making bucks off of it. If you um, get if you get a meal deal every working day for a year, you'll spend a seven hundred and eighty pounds. Now think <laughs> now think how much money you can save if you don't get a meal deal every day. Mm. That's a lot. Even in, even in, um, I don't really want to speak about trading that much because it's quite foreign to a lot of people. But when you're a retail trader and you don't have access to um, a lot of the info that you know the big banks and stuff like that have, and you can't really see the flow of the orders coming in, what you've got to do is you've got to develop um, a methodology where you do the same thing every single time. Um, if it looks like your setup, you trade it. It doesn't matter because if you've tested something enough times. It means the the statistical significance is is big enough, um, and you know that over a specific sample size. So if you if you test it over say three hundred trades or something, you know that that is a and it comes out profitable. You know that it's likely to be profitable in the future. It doesn't mean it's certain to be profitable. We have a better it just means it's likely. Yeah, exactly. Um, you have a better expectancy of what your uh, overall end end of day profit or end of month profit will be. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, it's purely about just doing the same things and seeing if the, the 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 outcome is valid or not. If you're doing crap things all the time, obviously you're not going to have a good outcome, are you? Yeah. So, and and you can look at people in the lower um, categories in terms of um, quality of life if they consistently make like bad decisions. So you see people who might be out of shape because they're consistently not working out, consistently um, eating more processed food, uh, more fatty foods, food not good for them, not getting enough sleep, maybe in taking alcohol or some form of drugs or being involved in friendships or relationships that are toxic, these things compound on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> You're making me think about myself now, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need to, yeah, you need to sort yourself out, bro. Like, I care your life. Like, and you're the one who knows about the marginal no, game. Yeah, go it's on. true, though. You, like, if you, as, long as, you're, as long as you're doing good things each day that can give you um, a good short-term out- term outcome that you can see that, oh yeah, shit, this is working in the short term. Obviously, over the long term, it's going to work well. Um, and you reduce your you ju- reduce your long-term risk at, you know, um, doing yourself over. Exactly. Even stuff like something silly as saving, like you may feel like, okay, this, this five pounds or this 20 pounds I'm saving today is going to make a difference. But if you continue to do so, let's say across 20, 35 years, you'll see how it's accumulated plus the compound interest will make a difference. So I like the listeners yeah. to kind of, as you're going through everyday life, think of this marginal gains and loss theory. Just every, de- every decision is relevant. Like every decision makes an impact to your life and it changes the trajectory of your life. So if, so if um, you're in a habit of making good decisions, just because just you think it's insignificant, don't feel like it's not that significant. One grain of rice alone ain't, is nothing, but if you have 20,000 of them, it's gonna make it's gonna make a difference. But yeah, go on. No, that's it. Um, no, I was just gonna say in regards to um, savings as well. I think there's a massive um, uh, kind of present period risk where um, people think that um, it's something called in in you know in economics it's called intertemporal discounting. But that's to do with you know people don't value the future as much as they do the present a lot. Of course, yeah. Um, so, you know, with things like investing, people don't see the long-term horizon as much as they can see the tangible short-term. Of course. Um, and I think that's, that's, I think at the moment anyway, that's, and it's not, it's not even um, a lot of our, us young people's fault because of the way that, you know, the interest rates and stuff are set up. But I think um, uh, we, a lot of us live for the present more than, you know, uh, 10, 20 years down the line. And to be fair, when I see a lot of kind of, uh, savings advice um all around I, I i i don't really believe that the mantra of just saving is uh, and you should save is is right because yes invest at the moment you're gonna, you're gonna die in interest rates yeah you're gonna eat your uh, money away no exactly at the moment we're not set up to have a high 
savings rate, obviously, with quantitative easing and whatnot, they've pushed the rates down. So. Which we'll talk about in a minute, um, but go on. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, paying attention more to um, the, the future is, or paying little attention to the future now is a massive, massive risk that um, uh, I think we we as a as a kind of demographic a young demographic have to try and uh, push past and it's really difficult um so uh yeah that's just uh, another thing that i just wanted to add there yeah speaking of that we can now go back into risk again um i was listening to a podcast i think two to three weeks ago i listened to the ft got quite a few good short podcasts that i listened to and one of them was talking about um investment and women are less likely women tend to have more savings accounts than men but they are less likely mm-hmm. to have like a stocks and shares ISA or just general um, investment. Um, yeah. I want to talk to you about that because first of all, I want to encourage um, my subscribers and listeners to get in research. I'll, I'll, I'll add a few links, but research into investing, because as you said, we're going to talk about why with, with the way interest rates are, there's not much of a long-term gain in just saving like eventually yeah. your your earnings will be eroded in inflation and just pure interest regardless. But if you can invest and you can start to make steady returns, you set yourself up better for the future. I wanted to um, ask you your thoughts on why you... Be- I, obviously, I have my thoughts, but why do you believe there's a difference in terms of women and men in terms of taking on risk in the form of investment with their personal finance? Um, well, I think... Uh, Gender differences mainly come down to biology, anyway. Full stop. Um, Facts. Rather than um, some crazy innate social conditioning. Now there is some of that. Mm. There is uh, you can attribute a, a fair amount of of uh, differences to that as well. But on the most part, it's biological differences. Um, with investing, for example, um, testosterone undoubtedly has been proven over and over again. Um, it increases risk appetite and. Um, and kind of competition and stuff like that that's not necessarily a good thing at all mm. um if you if there's no doubt to me that um the 2008 seven, eight financial crisis was caused by excessive risk and a few other things like um government kind of uh intervention bailing out the banks and making sure that they were safe no matter what but um, a lot of those products wouldn't have been created by without a massive, massive, excessive risk appetite. Of course. Now, if you look at the predominant, predominantly finance is made up of men, right? Yeah. Um, so obviously that biological um, thing is there where, you know, men are looking purely for, for return and alpha um, and to be able to get excessive returns. They want to make these products and, and, uh, and, and sell them and, and, and buy them, you know, um, I think, Especially in in uh, in investing as well, I think it is purely down to that difference in risk appetite. Um, of course, you could uh, you could argue that um, potentially over a longer life period, um, that men earn more on average. Um, however, that doesn't change the fact that between the ages of leaving university and uh, kind of thirty-ish, uh, yeah, women do earn, yeah, women do earn more. Um, but that period of just after 30, when predominantly that's when a lot of women have, have kids, that probably slows down their investing behaviour. And their risk, um, and, and the appetite for risk. Yeah, and their appetite for risk, because one, they have, uh, they, they've got, you know, a bigger, um, yeah, they've, they, you know, their, their decisions in the present, because they have a child, are probably more, um, uh, are probably more important than decisions, maybe five, ten years down the line. Um, I don't know. That could just be, um, just something attributed to it. But um, I think on the main, it's purely down to men having a bigger um, risk appetite. But with that, it's, it's not necessarily a good thing. At all. Because, because you know, you've got then a, a greater range of, for failure as well. So if you look at standard um, distribution of, of um, pretty much anything to do with the two genders, you tend to find that women have a higher average of things and men have a greater spread of or a bigger range of values so that means that men are likely to invest more they're also likely to invest the least as well at the same time um whereas women are likely to maintain uh, a higher average on even things like intelligence um and and investing as well i think women are a lot smarter when they do invest though because they don't have that excessive risk appetite 
um, they're, they're more likely to uh, hold an investment for longer as well. Um, they are genuinely, they are genuinely a lot smarter with the investments I find, and even female traders as well. Um, they they tend to have a, a clearer clearer head on them, um, even when just talking to them, not even necessarily watching them trade. Yeah, um, a lot of your sentiments um, I agree with. Like for example, I've seen quite a few studies with the IQ distribution that the average woman has a higher IQ than man, but it's like a bell curve. So for those who don't know, it starts off low, goes up to a peak, then comes back down again. So if you look at the two tails of the bell curve, um, you tend to see men more populated there. Um, so in terms of like what we're discussing about risk, um, I also feel like it um, is to do not only with biology, but just, and you can see it everywhere. You can see it everywhere in life. For example, if you look at the, da- the more dangerous jobs, you'll see that men um, are highly populated in, in those jobs because obviously men are more, their risk profiles are a lot higher than women's. That's why I think 97% of workplace deaths belong to men because they're way more likely to be involved in these jobs. And I've, I believe, I don't think there's a country, I was looking at data, I don't think there's a single country on earth that records data where men outlive women. So, and I think a lot of this is to do with the risk profile. However, when I was looking, I want to get your thoughts on this. When I was um, listening to the FD podcast, which was done by, I think it had like three women and two two gentlemen, or maybe three and one. They were talking that um, they believe the way investment is packaged is not attractive to women. So usually um, are old, are older, middle-aged um, white gentlemen, and it's not really uh, packaged in a manner that attracts women interest. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, Again, I think it comes down to um, that competitive nature and that competitive edge that men tend to want, you know, rather than um, women who might just look for more steady gains. A lot of these products that are kind of more exotic and more, um, well, they're called exotic products. Um, they might be made up of loads of different um, different products in one, like an ETF, for example. Yeah. Um, they're more attractive because they might have a bigger risk profile. And, you know, if you have a bigger uh, risk profile, then um, you're, you're more likely to want to go for something like that. Um, when you're a broker as well, you, you have to actually um, assess every single client um, if they're called a retail client, so they're not a professional client, you don't have mm. to really worry about that. Um, and you have to assess their risk profile. So you have to literally give them a questionnaire or an interview and then ask them, um, what have you traded before or what have you invested in before? Um, if they haven't, if they say that they haven't invested in specific um, derivatives, which is what I used to deal in, mm. um, then you're not really supposed to let them trade via you. Um, because the risk profile and derivatives is so so big because of leverage and stuff like that. Now, because obviously there's that biological thing with women where they're less likely to um, take on bigger risk. You know, these products aren't advertised to to women, so it's not it's, it's not necessarily that um, they're um, they're they're kind of not they don't want to invest in them. It's purely that if you're a broker, you're not going to spend your time give on marketing to demographic that probably isn't going to take you up on it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's quite interesting that how just things like biology, which is very, very difficult. You can't really change your biology makes and makes a massive impact on terms of that results. We find like, I find it quite interesting how some of us in society believe that if there's 40% X people X and 60% people Y, in this industry or in this um, study, we should see a representation that equals that. But that's not how life works. For example, in, as we're saying, in terms of risk, if men are more like, men have a higher risk profile, they're more likely to be involved in investment rather than women as we see that women save more. So that's, I just wanted to yeah. discuss that with you. All right, cool. So that's risk. Actually, let's talk about, um, moving on from risk, um, I got a few questions. One of my boy, Dr. Lee, uh, talking about um, quantitative and tightening and how that impacts the housing market. So oh, this yeah. is a bit of a geek fest for those who don't even know about this. Okay, cool. So let's try to explain quantitative easing and quantitative tightening as easy as possible for the listeners. So you can, um, which one do you want to take? Okay, you can, you can take, you can go first. On quantitative easing. So, so quantitative easing is the biggest con of the 20, 21st century. The biggest finesse um, ever. 
the biggest, the biggest uh, financial con ever. I, I actually can't believe um, that it's been allowed to just go on like this for such a long period of time. But anyway, go on, explain. Sorry. Yeah, so basically when, um, when the Bank of England had to drop interest rates, there comes a point where you can't drop them any lower. So you have to try and, um, you have to try and stimulate the economy by other means. And basically what the Bank of England went and did was they went and bought loads of assets on the open market. Um, and the majority of these were government bonds. Now what happens when they buy a government bond? Because it's the Bank of England buying from the Treasury, um, it basically cancels the government debt. Yep. So uh, the Bank of England's meant to be independent to the Treasury, but you'll notice that uh, you notice that Mervyn King had to go to the Treasury and get um, get it confirmed by uh, George Osborne back then um, to commit to QE. Now, and and um, Mervyn King is the head of the bank of the chair of the Bank of uh, yeah, England. Sorry, sorry. Um, and um, the, Osborne yeah. at the time he's the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. And um, basically, what QE's done is that it's, it's put loads of liquidity into the into the uh, economy. Um, so loads of cheap money into the economy, but it's it's gone purely to um, to asset holders. So this is why we've seen since two thousand two thousand eight nine, um, sorry two thousand nine ten. Sorry, um, we've seen such a big rise in. U.S. stock markets, um, such a big rise in housing markets because it's, all of this cheap money has gone to people that um, already own assets, and this is why rent, rental prices in in the UK are so high. Um, it's part of the reason why you're seeing loads of retail stores shut down um, because they can't sustain their margins on such high rents. So um, it is the biggest con ever purely because of the um the way that it's gone to those that hold assets yeah. it was originally there to boost inflation you'll notice that inflation's um inflation has occurred but only after the pounds depreciated yeah um so you know um they've it's basically a wealth transfer from the the have-nots to the haves again um, yeah, because like, um, yeah. What um the the theory behind um quantitative easing, which uh, many people describe as printing the money, essentially, is that okay, cool. We um we the central bank, so in, in our case, the Bank of England, we can't continue to bring interest rates lower than a certain percent because obviously you can't have negative interest rates because that means you have to charge people to hold money, and with things like cash, you can't really get away with that anyway. So it might have to go negative. Uh. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's looking that it's looking that way. Um, so Japan. So um, yeah. So the idea with with um, quantitative easing, which is where obviously as, as um, David eloquently explained, where the Bank of England goes and um, obtains um, securities on the open market or bonds like government bonds like the UK bonds, is to boost the money supply. So now we we're using our money to purchase your securities. And now you, the lenders, should now use this money to now obviously now lend to the people in the economy, the me's, the use, everybody else, and to stimulate um, the economy and create inflation. When really and truly, when's the, when, the, when these financial institutions get this money, as David says, they just buy more assets because it's, the money's mm-hmm. now cheap. So that's why we're seeing asset prices climb from like 2009-10 up until, up until today. That's a problem with quantitative easing. Now, speaking yeah. of that, um, recently, um, Yellen, um, um, who is the chair of the Federal Reserve, which is the central bank in America. She's gone now. She's got, oh, yeah, she's gone now, isn't she? It's, uh, what's his face? Oh, I can't remember his name. Powell, sorry. Yeah. Jerome Powell. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I forgot that. I forgot she's gone. Um, there's going to be t- um, quantitative tightening, which is basically the reverse. So instead of out here going... And pumping money into the into the into the economy, they're gonna drain the money out. So all the bonds that they've bought, so bonds are. Do you want to explain what bonds are? What's that? Do you want to explain? Oh, right, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So um, a bond is um, is basically a commitment to um, supply credit to um, it could be a government, a company for a fixed return each year, and then uh, your principal paid back on on the maturity of the bond. So if I buy a bond for a hundred quid and it's got a 2% coupon on it, it means mm-hmm. that I'll receive, um, I'll receive two pound a year till for however the bond is for. So it might be a 10 year bond and then I'll receive a hundred quid back at the end. Um, so yeah, it works, works like that. So you're basically lending to the British government. Yeah. And um, because obviously, um, 
you will always assume, well, depending on the credit rating, governments like the UK, you, you, you're thinking this is a safe investment because they're going to be able to pay me back. So what, yeah. um, so what um, quantitative tightening is, is that these bonds, once they reach maturity, so that's the end of the, of the bond, they're going to let them expire and they're not going to buy any more. So they're trying to slowly drain money out of the, out of um the um out of the economy. So how do you see this impacting stuff like housing? How's um I know it's a bit of a geek fest, but here's where it relates to everybody. One of the most the asset that most of my listeners care about is housing because most of us probably want to own a house one day, or probably don't want a house to cost a gazillion pounds a, a week to rent for half a shed in Zone Seven. So yeah. How do you, how does quantitative tightening, in your opinion, and I'll give mine, impact asset prices such as real estate, aka housing? Well, um, putting interest rates back up and reducing the um, uh, and, and unwinding the balance sheet are kind of two two parts of the same coin, but slightly different as well. Mm. So, what we really want to focus on is the interest rates going going back up because that means that um, credit becomes more expensive. Um, it basically increases the it basically increases the risk on on taking out credit because it is more expensive. expensive yeah, of course. Um, so that means that obviously people are going to be taking out mortgages less. Um, it's likely that um, uh, the demand for for housing will will reduce um, as we as we tighten credit situations. Um, so it means that the prices of houses will start to fall. Um, and you could see a buyer's market where you know it keeps dipping and dipping and dipping, and people just buy when it's cheap. But at the same time, you've got those people that um, are anticipating it for to sorry are anticipating for it to get to a certain really really low level. So you could just see a housing market crash. You never yes. know. Um, if wages could decrease all of a sudden, you'll see people being um, a lot tighter, so they might not even look at housing. So you could see over the next year or two um, a, a really, really big fall in, in housing prices as we normalise rates again. Um, we still got a very, very long way to go, though. Um, we're only at half a percent at the moment, and um, pre-crisis we were, at, we were at 5%. Yeah, well, 5% you know, so pre-crisis, yeah. So, so we've still got 10, 10 times to, to go, and I don't even think we'll be able to push up to 5% again um, unless something really, really drastic changes. Yeah, we won't be able to do it. Yeah, so um, like this is this is what interested me um, because obviously, if obviously uh, with um, quantitative tightening that um, interest rates goes up, then you're looking at what happened to like the investors. Like, how do they feel? Do they start to panic? So I feel like it just depends on how incrementally this quantitative tightening does occur. But also, I want people to also understand that when there's high interest rates even though it, it does make it a buyer's market because obviously the price are going down, but if the interest rates are still high, the cost of actually getting a mortgage also do increase as well. So yeah, it's kind of like a double-edged sword in that regard. So Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's why um, um, <clears throat> people look at fixed rate mortgages and, and things like that rather than uh, tracking mortgages when, it's, when there's a lot of uncertainty. Of course. Uh, because, you know, if, if you're in a fixed rate mortgage for 10 years, you're kind of all right. Yeah. There's a period of turbulence, you know. Um, but you know, this is why house prices are going up, probably because people have fixed in like one percent rate or one point five percent rate, depending on what their situation is. You know, um, but again, this the, the interest rate you can almost class as um, a risk-free rate. Okay, so the reason why um, the equities markets have been rallying so hardly hard over the last uh, ten years or so is because quickly, quickly explain to um, the listeners what the equities market is. Ah, oh, sorry. So, like the stock market, S and P five hundred, New York Stock Exchange, um, FTSE. Nasdaq, FTSE. FTSE, yeah, yeah, those kind of things, um, is because there's there's no there's there's how do I put it? If the, if interest rates are so low, then there is no point in holding your money in a bank account. Because yeah, because what's, what's the incentive? Yeah. If, so if, if you can get, um, if let's say for example on equities, you can get. Seven to eight percent a year, but your bank, but your savings accounts offer you one point five. Like it's a no brainer. But yeah, gone exactly. And this is called um, this is called risk uh, equity risk premium compression. So that means that basically <clears throat> stocks are only rallying 
because um, there's you know there's nowhere else to put your money. So the best place to get a return is to just buy these assets and hold and keep hoping that other people buy it. It's called um, irrational exuberance, where people, and this was coined by Alan Greenspan before the uh, before the, the 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 financial crisis. It's when people are just buying because they see something going up. It's like how what happened with Bitcoin. Yeah, um, there weren't really any fundamentals behind Bitcoin rallying apart from mass adoption. Oh, well, no, sorry, not mass adoption, um, mass people buying. There's nothing wrong with that, just as long as you recognize that that's probably... Yeah, fear, what fear, fear of missing out. Exactly. Um, and this, uh, this, uh, the fact that there was no risk-free rate meant all this money went back into, went into these other assets like housing, stock market. Now, if this risk-free rate comes back, which means that interest rates are going to go up um, and, the, and the, the central banks are going to unwind their balance sheets, it means that people are likely to pull their money out and put it where... Is safe, which is um, government debt, because you can get a higher yield, um, and um, and savings accounts again. Mm. Um, probably not savings. I'm not sure about savings accounts, but most likely we'll just go into government debt because um, the risk-free rate of return is now higher now that interest rates go up. Um, so you're likely to see equity markets fall and uh, housing markets. That's another reason. And it's all part of the same reasoning. But um, yeah, it's just a total deleveraging across the board where people have used cheap credit for such a long time. Now that it becomes more expensive to repay, they want to kind of uh, get their money back um, and pay it off. So uh, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's quantitative easing really in a nutshell and what's going to happen. Okay, cool. So that's quantitative easing, tightening, a risk so that's a bit of more technical information for those who are looking to get on the housing ladder any questions definitely hit me and david up and we'll happy to make it as much english as possible um to conclude i want to talk about game theory and how that can relate to like everyday life so what what yeah. what, what is your understanding of game theory um if you look at the i'm sure you know about the prisoner's dilemma um it's basically when you have two people in a room um and one wants to conf- one you can they they can either both confess um one confesses the other doesn't <laughs> they both don't confess um or vice versa the the other one uh, confesses and and the other bloke doesn't <laughs> um <clears throat> it's basically how you make a decision based on what reward you'll get back so you'll see um supermarkets for example they um they will change their prices based on what the their competitors are doing. Yes. Um, so they might look at a basket of basket of prices in one supermarket and change a, a basket in their own uh, supermarket and change the prices of a basket in their own supermarket to reflect the change in supply and demand. So another supermarket might demand this. Might, might provide a better demand for uh, a specific basket and then the other one will change it based on that. Um, it basically is just a way to how to uh, gain an advantage or um, how do I put it, gain an advantage or, or not really. So for example, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a more real life example as well. If you're in um, an interview, you t- you, it's probably best not to um, say what your salary expectation is Yes. Before they give give you a number, because then they can they can anchor you on that number. Yes. And then you've got less less ability to move up or down. I mean, unless you give like a number that's I don't know twenty twenty five percent above what they expect, but then you might be doing yourself over because you might be too expensive to them, and they don't really want to haggle. So it's always best for them to anchor themselves first, um, and then you negotiate around what they um, provide, because obviously they're looking at a, as low a number as possible with a view to move up. Yeah, so yeah, that's the f- game. I find game three very, very interesting, and especially for those who are engaging in business because you have compared uh, competitors, and you kind of have to look at what competitors do. But um, if you like, for example, I think I think this must have been when I was in secondary school, maybe early uni. I think the um the phone, the phone um the telecommunications company got um done for colluding. And and why and why this is bad is because obviously let's say um, Dave is the CEO of Vodafone, I'm the CEO of EE, and I know somebody else is the CEO of what's another network? Uh, free, free, and we all get together and see. I'll be like, okay, cool. Let's all set our let's say our standard iPhone price plans to a hundred pounds per month and a hundred and three hundred pounds um, phone fee when you first get it. 
the consumers are, if we all do that and none of us cheat, the consumers are screwed because you're still going to have a phone and there's no other choice. Like every in the market is doing that same there's, rate. There's no competition. There's no competition. However, like if one person, as you said, if one person cheats the system, then they can, let's say, um, David, you cheat and say, okay, cool. I'm going to pretend I'm going to do that, but I'm going to slap it to 50. What's going to happen to my market share and freeze market share? It's just going to, it's just going to, it's just going to evaporate because you've undercut us. So now you can make even more profits than we agreed on because you've undercut us. I find Game Free quite right. interesting because it kind of examines like psychology, philosophy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's behavioral mass. economics, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's a good part of it. But this is why I don't understand why OPEC, which is the um, organization for oil producing. Yeah, so countries yeah, like. Oil, oil, oil exporting countries. Right? Yeah, so Nigeria is one of them, Saudi Arabia, et cetera, Venezuela, et cetera. Yeah. Um, I don't know why they're allowed to exist because essentially they set the supply, they set the supply and output, um, which then obviously sets the price mm. um, of oil around the globe. This is between all of the different countries. I don't know why it's legal because I believe in you know a freer market where yeah. a country should be able to set whichever price it is based on you know the, the type of product it is, the, the the you know whether it's it's competitive on a global stage, not just set you know, output based on keeping a price low or high. That doesn't make sense because it's bad for the consumer. There's a massive deadweight loss. So I have no idea how OPEC's still legal, but, you know, you, you don't really want to pick a fight with Saudi Arabia, do you? Yeah, of course. But it's crazy you know because I mean? it impacts it impacts us all. For example, if OPEC decide they want to push up the price and, like, only output a really low quality um, quantity of um, oil, which happened not long ago, even when I was in Nigeria last time, um, they decided to have a low output of oil and then people were going crazy. Like there was like queues upon queues at the gas station so people could top up mm. on oil. Like, but what government, what governing body can actually has the influence or power? Do you reckon, like who does that? Is it the WTO? Is it the UN? Like how do you police OPEC? Well, uh, by being the United States of America because they're um, now just since uh, when was it 20 I think it was 2016 January 2016 that was the first time that they were allowed to export their own oil um, and obviously now America has been uh, undergoing shale um, production and fracking mm. quite heavily which is obviously way cheaper than traditional oil methods of extraction Yeah. Um, and basically they are producing oil on such a big scale now that I actually think it was the US that um, was able to push the price of oil down so low um, because I, I, I don't really see how uh, it did go to $20 a barrel. Uh, yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, so I think they just, because they're not part of OPEC, you see. Yeah, so of course. In, independent, you know. Um, so they don't have to adhere to any of these supply things. But it was, it was quite interesting that it was just... Um, Two years before that, um, you know, the price started dipping from one hundred and six dollars all the way down to twenty, to 20 in, in in that year. So it's almost like I felt anyway the US were doing something dodgy by trying to stifle the competition yeah. and trying to put all these other oil rigs out of business, um, especially in places like Brazil where it's massively government funded. So I don't know. It's a little bit of a conspiracy, but you know. Yeah, um, but Saudi, Saudi Arabia, even Saudi Arabia, that's why they were trying to um, push down the um, push down the prices. By putting more output because yeah, they they have a fun. higher break even point. I mean, a, yeah. a lower break even point than other. Even in OPEC, the inverse cabin OPEC. Speaking of yeah. game theory and real life, one of your favorite topics, Brexit. So right now, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, so I'll give you a platform to bring um, to Brexit rant. Right now, um, the EU and the UK are in a are in a stalemate. prison you still mate the prison dilemma like if, if they both yeah. try to inflict pain and get their own way for each other they both are a negative loss but at the same time they don't want to give too much away so it's quite a hard balance so what's your thoughts on Brexit the game theory also a lot of the mumbo jumbo around Brexit and there's a Tories talking about oh, maybe with this new geezer that we might not have a um, we might not have a Brexit all, this, all the malarkey going on well, to be fair, I think they're all fucking idiots on all sides. <laughs> firstly, because quite frankly, it's 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 a total it's a total shit show. Um, uh, it doesn't make sense to me how either. Okay, you've got 
um, you've, you've got uh, politicians that need to respect um, the vote or whatever. But Facts. I don't see, I don't see how you can have someone leading the leading the negotiations that firstly was campaigning to for the other side. You know, well, the, the, the David, in. the David, uh, what's his name again? No, not David Davis. Uh, Theresa May. Oh, Theresa you know, oh, May. How, okay, cool. Yeah, I don't. She's an idiot anyway. But I don't yeah, see facts. how um, how she can be proposing things, um, even if David Davis is the head negotiator for the moment. Um, I don't see how she can be proposing things if she was anti-Brexit. Um, you need really someone that um, understands the cause because it's what the people voted for. Now I know it was only forty-eight to fifty-two. But that's how democracy works. You can't really argue against, um, you know, things like the custom union, for example. Um, it doesn't make sense purely because um, it's not what people voted for. You know, yes. it didn't say, oh, should we stay in the customs union and blah, blah, blah on the paper. It said, do you want to leave the European Union? The customs union is part of the European Union. Yes. There was no, you know, there was, the, there was nothing ambiguous about the question, in my opinion, and I think in, in quite a lot of people's opinions. But it's like people are just hanging on to these these kind of um, the, the clutching at straws now. That's the phrase um, with these things that oh, it might just disrupt Brexit. When really you should just go and try and do it as peacefully as possible because it's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, you're going to upset the majority of the country. Yeah, is 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 a massive disaster um, right now, especially the Tory parties in complete disarray. They're just a bunch of ugh, anyway. They're all they're all in disarray. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's yeah. Total, to be fair, Labour Labour's Labour also in disarray, but they're not government, so we don't even care about them too tough at this moment. <laughs> well, yeah, it's true. Like it's true. Like so they can. No, yeah, no, no. It's true. Yeah, but, but um, back, back to back to game theory. Sorry, I didn't mention Barnier. Um, he's a total idiot as well. Because, <laughs> I was waiting for um, you to get on my man still. Who, who, okay, who's Barnier? Who's Barnier? Explain to them who's Barnier. So Barnier is the head EU negotiator. Yeah. Um, he's a Frenchman. Um. <laughs> But so he's a really lovely person. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, it, they, I don't think that they know their own rules even because um, this whole thing to do with financial services, for example, um, it is a total. I don't understand why people are even discussing it. Okay, if you're um, if you're J.P. Morgan, for example, right, and you want to go and deal with Barclays, who are based in the EU, okay, or you want to you want to deal on the DAX, for example, which is the German stock exchange. Yep. You don't need a single market or a trade agreement to allow you to do that. Yep. If you're a small investor like like myself, for example, okay, and you're not classed as a professional investor or something called an eligible counterparty, which is the big banks or big investment houses, um, whatever insurance companies, you you that's the they, that's the only people that it will affect. Okay. Now to be fair, I can still go for a broker here and deal with um, assets in another country. But 95% of the business in, out, of the, out of the city is wholesale, which is the latter two client types, which is the professional clients and the eligible counterparties. There is absolutely nothing stopping them from doing business with any firm or any other professional client or eligible counterparty within the EU. Nothing. And if a fund manager wants to set up um, a fund... Uh, and he's sitting in London and he wants to set up and fund in, in Dublin, which is part of the EU, obviously. Yep. He can do that. There's no there's no problem. So I don't know why there's so much of this jawboning over um, financial services because it, it just, it, it doesn't matter. And I don't know why it still um, hasn't been noted that much by people in the, in the city. I um, think it's to do with lobbyists. Um, I think it's to do with the... the um, I can't remember the name of it. Is it City UK? I think it's that lobbying group. But it just doesn't make sense. All it does is protect the big banks, um, this um, arguing for a trade agreement, because you've got <clears throat> MIFID 2, which is all the, the, the EU regulations. Yep. There's 1.4 million paragraphs of that, right? Which small firms are going to be able to interpret all of that? It suits the big banks because, you know, they've got, I don't know, 500 compliance people to go through it and, yep. to build, and they've got the capital to spend on it. No small firm's going to do it. So it suits the big 10 banks. That's all it does. And it's ridiculous. And that's why you see now there's a bank that is based in Madrid and, if, and uh, a Swiss hedge fund. They're relocating to London because they don't want to be part of MIFID. So the EU's stuffing themselves up here. They should be a lot nicer to us because we're sick. Yeah, when it comes to financial services, like 
um, we're we're actually clear for that. What I'm what I want to what understand is that around the Brexit period, like for me, I personally I voted I voted Remain because I don't trust anybody in government to negotiate anything. Because I my 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 guess was that if they do if we do vote um to leave, they're just gonna yeah. they'll still find a way to do some customs union shit, and this was basically gonna be like a basically gonna be like a fake Adidas version of the, being the EU in the first place. <laughs> So yeah, like yeah, some Adidas version, but um, what a lot of the stuff was touted, um, which is completely drowned now. Well, not drowned, like disappeared. Was loads of banks were leaking out stuff. So maybe it's a lobbyist thing where they're saying, oh, if we if we if the UK votes leave the EU, oh, we're gonna move our headquarters to here. We're gonna move this to there. And, and I can't it's lie, so I, I, yeah, I felt I I actually fell for that. So I was like, raw, this is what you man are saying. Like, okay, this is oh, this yeah. is. Because I think I read at first they were saying that a hundred thousand people were going to move. Okay, right. now see, so see that one. I knew that was nonsense because you a hundred thousand. Do you know how many hundred thousand people is? That's a lot of people. Like that's but a few people like things like J JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Deutsche Bank, and I come out a few firms were talking about how they're going to move certain branches out of the UK. If and it was and it's gone from it's gone from like ten thousand now five thousand yeah. now. A thousand now it's only going to be a couple of hundred now it's only like two desks yeah, it's ridiculous yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's purely down to the reasons that i said is it's because they they have to be in the country to serve retail clients yeah but they can deal with anyone who that they want um if if they're a professional or eligible counterpart so it's it's totally totally ridiculous and obviously that's the predominant side of their business insurance is a little bit different but there's still equivalence cause clauses that the eu have set out um, and that, that can that can function across the borders. So it's it's t- it's a total red herring. They're fucking idiots. Um, the EU. Um, if you actually examine the um, let's let's just rant about the EU and why it's trash to um, end this podcast. Um, I find it quite interesting how people like as of today, like they're still campaigning for Remain, um, and they're saying, oh yeah, the Tory government is bad because of austerity and all that type of stuff, like. Um, do you know what the EU has been doing to Greece, Ireland, Portugal, and Italy? Like, the EU is a failing experiment, really and truly. It's very, very inefficient in terms of, like, you can't have a European Central Bank, but then at the same time, so you control the monetary policy, but at the same time, everybody's kind of, like, fiscally can do what they please. Well, most countries. Just go on, you go on. No, you can't have you can't have monetary union with countries that are so different. Like yeah. you can't have you can't have the south of Europe um, starved in terms of um, you know uh, when their unemployment's so high with with a with a with a and, you, and then you can't have Germany who don't want a high euro, you know, for trade reasons. Um, it's 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 ridiculous. Um, the the eurozone experiment is a total failure because it's you can't have you know that many differing countries with unitary monetary policy just doesn't make sense and uh, you know there's a book um that was written in 1998 or 1999 by a french guy called uh john jacques rosa and he actually predicted everything that's happened until now oh really Um, i used to read that book yeah it's it's called a euro era it's uh it's a really really good book um and it's it's quite scary actually i did predict everything but yeah, it's it's a it's a total failed failed experiment, and it's only there to really serve Germany. But now Germany's slipping. Yeah, you know, Germany Germany's had awful data. They uh they didn't have very good data today actually. Um, Even Merkel's last election wasn't very convincing either. No, and they've got they've got you know a hard right uprising as well. They've got uh, the far right party that's uh, that's uh, second in the in the polls, I think. So they're the second strongest party in Germany. Um, I mean, if, if something like that doesn't doesn't show you discontent, I don't know what does. Yeah, speaking of that, actually, okay, we'll, we'll end on a different point. Um, the rise of populism, as we can see, um, it happened here, for example, like Jeremy Corbyn, he's on the rise because people kind of, basically, people are fed up of what's been, of what's going on, like how the financial markets are basically, well, the financial institutions are basically dictating how life should be. Um, in the EU, Germany basically telling everybody what to do. And then in the UK, Brexit came as a massive. Brexit came as a shock to me. I can't lie. Trump in America didn't come as a shock to me whatsoever. Like I had, I had a feeling that I even tweeted that Trump's gonna win. Mm. Um, yeah. But like, if well, you agree. you could see um, the um, the far right parties in Poland, France, and now Germany rising because people are realizing that right, we've got. It's very expensive to live where we live. 
is mm-hmm. unemployment in some countries are high. Cost of living, as I said, is high. Interest rates are low, so not even there's no point us even saving. We have to use credit just to get by. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like they're looking at maybe like the financial institutions who are just creaming cash, creaming cash, and people can come in with that type of populist type narrative and literally sweep up support in 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 drones gone. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's. It's. I think there's two. There's a few different uh, kind of reasons. Um, I think, um, and it's different for each for each zone. For the so for the UK, it's different for uh, Germany. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, sorry for the for the countries in the in in the EU. It's different for America. It's different. Um, it all does amount to the same kind of thing, though, and it's purely disenfranchisement and discontent. Mm-hmm. If you've had, you know, if you've grown up from the age of sixteen, and you're in Greece. Um, you've grown up from the age of sixteen. You're now twenty four, and you've never had a job because there's just none there. You're going to want to change something, aren't you? Now, what, what's the bit? You're going to get more desperate as the day goes by. Yeah, and what's the common denominator for your whole life? Well, this big, massive institution that's just imposed, you know, a huge amount of austerity on you, um, and you don't see any way out. So, why are you going to want to? Um, why are you going to want to kind of stay within this? This this kind of intangible, over government governing body thing, you know. I think that's what's happened in this country um, since. Obviously, people have seen after two thousand eight. You're right in terms of the financial institutions, but you've also seen, you know, the EU um, go in and do things that you didn't vote for within your country. Of course, you know, um, and it's almost like an invisible hand working, but not in the way that Adam Smith wanted. In the way that you know works for politicians. And politicians only. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's loads of different reasons. In, in America, it's, I think there's it's it's it's, it's even deeper than that. Um, I think there's long-standing issues with um, the employment base. So everything's moved to the service sector. Yeah. In the Midwest, you know, there's no jobs in um, in well, there's fucking no jobs anywhere in America. Really, it sounds like there are because of the employment so so low. But um, you know, that's only for specific cities. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a tough time I think at the moment. Um, and I don't really see it getting that much better in all honesty, in all honesty. Um, it sounds pretty doom and gloom. Yeah, what to um, say, yeah, we're giving people a lot of hope right now. Nah, well, you know, you have to be realistic. I don't really think it's going to get that much better, unfortunately, because, um, uh, whenever I ask the question even to, to professional economists about, which way interest rates are going to go. Um, and interest rates have a massive, massive, massive bearing on the Life. economy. Even if you, even if people think it's like a, a trivial thing, it's, it's not at all. Even crime rates are related to interest rates. Um, and there's no way that they can go lower. And, I, and, and every single economist I ask don't know which, what's going to happen. You know, um, if we have another crisis, they have no clue. And it's just going to be quantitative easing again is probably the, the answer, which means that those who have assets are going to get richer again. Which is quite a sad point to end the podcast. I don't even try. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a lighter note to end there. Maybe crack some jokes, but like, there's not really that much jokes that uh, basically the system's nah, going to pan everybody again, basically. Yeah, I just, I think what, I think what everyone needs to do is just become more individual and uh, look after themselves. Um, and and be more self-interested because I think if everyone's self-interested, then actually we function better as a society. That's that's basically economic to... theory where in economic theory is a lot the basis most economic theory they always have a few assumptions like low transportation costs and stuff like that. But one of the main assumptions is perfect information. That means every individual and every institution in that economy has the best information, perfect information, so they always act rationally. And if every acts rationally, we will reach equilibrium. Like that's the optimal point. So. That's why, I always, yeah. Yeah, that's why it's always good to preach. Um, as you say before, marginal gains, like making the correct decision on a day-to-day basis, doing your research. Like we've given you some information on the housing market. You could also go on expanding that and m- mesh it with what you want to do. And but also, I, but also I want more people to look at Georgism as well as a different kind of political uh, economic thinking. Because um, if you can see... If you can see past um, the kind of uh, the, the economic theory side of it, um, it's more equitable for both people on the left and the right. And um, 
it, it, it can work. I think it can work really well, but it needs more backing basically. Um, it just doesn't have it at the moment because every politician is a is a is a landlord basically. So exactly. they're going to want to pass everything. Yeah, exactly. They, they want it out of the public eye. To be fair though, and I hate Labour Party and I hate Jeremy Corbyn. They did have it in their manifesto, uh, which pissed me off. But they didn't remove all the other taxes, which which uh, doesn't make sense. Doesn't it's not yeah, exactly. That's why. That's why. I, that's why I just forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we we um we'll, we'll do our podcast on land tax probably in the next two or three weeks and then. Yeah, it's and then we explore, we explore Georgianism, socialism, that, that stupid thing, capitalism, yeah. and, everything, and everything else. But yeah, thank you, David, for lending me your time no worries, on man. this week's podcast. And thank you. Um, where can we find your reading, or where can we find you if you want us to find you? Um, I've got a website, davidbellfx.com. Um, yeah. and then just I've got my Twitter as well, which is. Uh, do, you want us, do you want them to find you? Uh, I can't remember. Oh, okay. It's David two underscores Bell. Okay, that two underscores shit pisses me off. I don't know why. <laughs> it's just so irritating. Your older was worse. You're like five underscores DB, then another five yeah, underscores. I know, mate. So, so people couldn't find me. Ridiculous. <laughs> move like a KGB. Move like a KGB agent. But yeah, don't worry. I'll I'll put the link into um for David's website. Very intelligent guy. And follow him on Twitter. He's actually quite funny. Uh, your exchanges are your exchanges on Twitter. You're, they're more peaceful now. Like you're not as you're not yeah, as. No. <laughs> I've, I'm, I've, I've, I've reached a level of Zen, mate. Yeah, yeah. Before, <laughs> like you were like, you, I can't. Even, I don't want to repeat what you. Yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, but yeah, you, I'm, I'm you, oh, you're the funnest. Yeah, you're the you're. The, I'm, I'm trying to take a leaf out of your book. I'm not. Um, <laughs> I don't call people fantastic fools and stuff when they just say things that are so unbelievably retarded with such bass in their voice. But yeah, I'm trying to take a leaf out of your book. But yeah, definitely follow David. Really stuff. Very intelligent uh, young man. And you will learn quite a lot. But yeah, we'll be back probably in two, three weeks. Lo- um, time, as long as time, time balances and we'll talk about the other modes of society. But yeah, thank you, David. No worries, mate. Thanks for having me. There you have it. Me and David went through all types of theories from marginal gains and marginal losses. How 1% changes in your life incrementally can make a positive or negative impact. Talked about race, how men and women different risk, how women can be better traders, but men end up doing better for investments because they're more risk, risk they have a higher risk appetite. We discussed Brexit, we discussed why the European Union sucks, just discussed a bit of game theory, all that type of stuff. If you have any questions for me or David, please hit us up, we're both on social media, we're both on Twitter, or you can email me anyway.thisonomics.com all the details will be in um, my description on iTunes and well, Apple Podcasts sorry and SoundCloud below please make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts just search Thisonomics if you listen to it on SoundCloud and you've got an um, Apple device search Thisonomics and you could give me a nice 5 star rating that would be nice also follow me on SoundCloud you can search Thisonomics as well on Twitter D1Synomics Instagram Thisonomics hello at Thisonomics.com for emails David is, I believe, David underscore Bell as in B-E-L-L-E or might be double underscore, but all the details will be below. Thank you for listening this week and I'll be back next week. God bless. Sports Social Podcast Network.